teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Game of Thrones, The Rise of David. In this series, we look at how God removed Saul from the throne and took David, a simple shepherd boy, and made him the king of Israel. Our text is gonna be 1 Samuel 25. We're gonna be looking at David and Abigail and Nabal. And I'm gonna just read only three verses out of from verses 32 to 35. So actually four verses, 32 to 35. Uh, to kind of orient us, and then we'll work our way through this text. And we've got a lot of text to work through, so let's dive in. Hear now the word of the living God. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Uh, one of the most popular TV shows out there right now is the TV show The Walking Dead. And it's a show about zombies is what it seemed to be about. And when I first heard about it, I was not interested in watching it. But my wife can't get enough of zombie shows. Linda <laughs> loves zombie shows. And so I acquiesced and gave in and said, I don't know why you like watching zombie stuff, but I'll watch it with you. And uh, actually, yes. <laughs> actually, the only reason we ever watched it is because it's actually filmed in the area where I grew up, and the main villain the first couple seasons was supposedly from the town where I grew up. And I'm not really into zombie shows. Neither one of us were. But what we discovered pretty quickly is it's not really about zombies. Zombies are just a device to put people in very extreme, difficult situations and then to say, how do these people respond? Does their character change? Do people who seem to be good start doing evil because suddenly they got in a difficult situation? Do they start thinking that the ends justify the means? And it's a major thing that happens. And one of the amazing things, if you watch the show across years, is virtually everyone at one time or another does both good things and bad things. And even the people that you like and you are pulling for occasionally do things that you just cringe and say, that was not a good choice. That was morally a bad choice. And so I bring this up because the same is true of David. As we watch him, David is put in some pressure cooker situations. Uh, his are not zombies, obviously, it's King Saul and other situations happening around him. And we see he's got an arc that is not all, you know, we used to like in the 1950s, the guys rode out and you could tell who they were. They were wearing black cowboy hat. They were bad and they were always bad. They never did anything good. And if they were wearing the white cowboy hat and it was Roy Rogers, it was always good. I wish life were that simple. But the reality is we're constantly swapping those hats, aren't we? And that's exactly what we see with David. And David's done really well, but today we're going to see in the text where he takes a turn for the worse. The pressure has come, and David kind of caves in and gives to it. So let's dive in. Now, as a background to our story, remember, Saul's been pursuing David. We've been looking at this for weeks. He's been chasing David around the wilderness. And in the last segment we looked at, David had actually had the chance to kill Saul. 
But David, you remember, did not. He even he just cut off a corner of Saul's robe and he was conscience stricken because he realized what he had done was wrong. And so he spared Saul's life. And amazingly enough, when he went out and he told Saul what he had done, Saul was remorseful. And for the first time in this story ever, since chapter 15 where Saul got in trouble, for the first time in chapter 24, verses 20 and 21, right at the end of last week's text, Saul says, David, you're right. You're more righteous than I am. And I realize God is going to put you on the throne. What Samuel said is true. You're going to be king one day. Remember me. Don't wipe out my family. So it's an amazing thing. Saul leaves and he temporarily at least stops pursuing David. And so for the first time we're going to see in this chapter, David can settle in a single area. Remember, we watched, kind of looked on those maps where he's moving everywhere all over one part of Israel. Now David's going to get to settle in a single area. But as we discover this is happening, we immediately found out in our text for today in 1 Samuel 25, 1, the first words we read are, now Samuel died and Israel assembles. And Remember, Samuel is the unquestioned spiritual leader of Israel. We haven't seen him as much in recent chapters, but he is the leader of Israel. He was the one who had prophesied regarding Saul's reign. He's the one who prophesied the end of Saul's reign. He is the one who prophesied that David would be the king. He is the one who had anointed David as king. If you remember in chapter 18, when David was being pursued by Saul, David went to Samuel to find refuge and protection. And Saul sent three waves of men after David. And every time they came into the presence of Samuel, they all started prophesying. And then even Saul comes trying to pursue and kill David, and he begins to prophesy. So this man has been a source of spiritual comfort. It is through his hands that David David has been anointed as the king and the spirit has come upon David. He has been a source of uh, spiritual strength, guidance, and protection for David. And now he's gone. But at least Saul appears to have finally responded to Samuel's words. Because the last thing we've heard from Saul is what Samuel said was right. You're going to be the king someday. And I just want you to show mercy towards me and to my offspring when God puts you on the throne. So David overall, even though this is a blow losing Samuel, he's in a better place. Saul is not chasing him. How is David going to respond? This newfound freedom from persecution, will it lead to good or to ill? How will he act? Well, at that point, what we find out uh, in verses 1 to 3, the last part of verse 1 tells us David moves down to the desert of Maon, and we meet here the three main characters that are going to dominate this text. And I use the word character. You need to understand it's both ways. They're the three main people we're going to hear about, but what's most important about them is their character, their moral fiber. That's what's going to be revealed in this story. And so the first one we meet is King David, who is moving down into the desert. And of course, we know David. David's name means beloved. And he is the one who's been anointed as king. The Spirit is upon him. And we've seen David time after time thus far walking by the power of God, receiving guidance from God, walking in character, not returning evil for evil and all of that. David, the anointed one, the beloved of God. The second person we meet is named Nabal. And if you Notice what, we, what we're told in verse 2 is a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel 
was very wealthy. He had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep. So at that point, if you notice the way the writer is doing it, we're not even told what Nabal's name is. Uh, Beth, if you can go to the next screen. He, he's, we're not even told what his name is. All we're told is he is rich. He is a certain man, a such and such a man, and he is very, very rich. We're told he's got 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep. Now, it's shearing time, and so you have an understanding. 3,000 sheep would probably produce about three tons of wool for this guy. So he is wealthy, and he's just about to get a whole lot wealthier. Now, if you're following the text at this point, you might think that this man of wealth is going to be a source for David. David's got 600 guys to feed, and he's in a desert wilderness. How's he going to do this? Well, enter this certain man who's extremely wealthy. Perhaps he will be the one. Except for we then read in verse 3, his name was Nabal. Now, that does not mean a lot to you and I, but when a Hebrew reads this, the first thing they notice is the word Nabal means fool. That's what his name means. Now, probably we, we might wonder you know, whether uh, what mother would have a child born and look at him and say, I'm, I'm going to name you fool. <laughs> so it may be that the word Nabal earlier had a different meaning that it kind of lost over time or it's kind of a nickname. If you remember when Jacob was born, Jacob meant he grasps the heel, but figuratively it came to mean one who deceives. Grasping the heel was to sneak up behind somebody. And so the, the name kind of took a new connotation over time. And maybe that's the way it is with Nabal. Or maybe his mom was just having a really bad day. But either way, this guy's name is Fool. And notice his characterization in verse 3 is, you know, her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. So he's surly, but the important thing is the word there that says he is mean in his dealings. That word is the Hebrew word ra. Not really important you remember it, except for this. The word's going to occur eight times in this chapter. Okay? It is this fool is ra. And all of his actions are ra. All of them are evil, mean, you're going to distressful. You're going to see this word appear eight times. A variety of people it being applied to or actions or possible things happening. But it's a very, very important idea. And so the question we get when we realize this guy is rich and powerful. He has all kinds of resources that could help the future king. But there's a problem. He's a fool. And he is acting Evil. Can you think of anyone else who is rich and powerful and ought to be helping the future king, but unfortunately is acting like a fool and is being evil? King Saul. And so, will this man be like Saul? Next person we meet is Abigail. Now, she's the wife of Nabal, the evil fool, and Abigail means my father rejoices. If you're hearing your name, something like Abby. <laughs> Abby wanted me to bring her up here as a thing, but I told her I couldn't do it. She wanted the spotlight, but I couldn't do it for her. But if you are named Abigail, it means my father's delight or my father rejoices. 
So very different than the fool. Okay, but she's married to the fool. And we're told she is beautiful. But more important, we are told she is uh, intelligent. That's how the NIV translates it. It's literally of good understanding. And the word good, which is a Hebrew word tov, again, not important that you remember the word tov, but it's important in this chapter because it's going to occur six times. So ra, evil, bad, is going to occur eight times. Tov, good, uh, that which is, is right, is going to occur six times. And we're going to see this interplay between these two things throughout the chapter. So the question we're left with immediately when we meet these characters is, well, What's going to happen here? I mean, if you're watching this as a TV show, you would say, oh boy, I've already learned this, this is going to end up with some interesting interaction between these three people. Well, that's exactly what we're supposed to wonder. So what happens immediately is in verse 4 to 6, David's going to send a greeting down to Nabal. Now, I'm going to put it up on the screen in the English Standard Version because it's more literal than the NIV here, and it's going to help us understand the nature of David's greeting. David sends 10 young men down because Nabal's shearing sheep. He sends the young men down. He says, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all you have. So the word greet there is literally the word you shall give peace to him. It's shalom. And then three times your, your greeting of peace is going to be a threefold peace of blessing upon Nabal. Peace to you. Peace to all you have. Peace to your entire house. I mean, Nabal, I just want you to have peace. And the word shalom means not only absence of conflict, but it means prosperity. It means I want everything to be right for you and your people. So uh, we do this and we send this blessing to you. So how would someone respond to that blessing? Well, David also sends a request. And the request he does, he says, look, it's sheep shearing time. This is in verses 7 and 8. It says it's sheep shearing time. And when your shepherds were with us, look, we were a wall around. We, we protected your shepherds. Nothing happened. You can ask your guys. You didn't lose a single sheep. And so we've come, and I've highlighted here in verse 8, we've come at a festive time. The Hebrew word is literally tov. We've come on a good day. You are wealthy, and you're about to be a whole lot wealthier. You're about to bring in like three tons of wool that you're going to get to sell, and you're going to be undoubtedly slaughtering some sheep and doing some stuff. It is a very good day for you. We've taken care of you and your men for months, and so we're asking you, out of your abundance, would you please share with us? Now, notice David here is very humble Please give your servants and your son, David, whatever you can find. He, he's taking the position of humility. And what he's counting on here is it's a culture of hospitality. In this culture, there is no reasonable way to refuse this request. Especially, I mean, to be honest, if somebody just showed up at shearing time and hadn't done a thing for you and requested you to give something to them, you would. But here, David is saying, for months and months and months, we have basically been your contract army out here protecting, and you didn't lose all the things you would normally lose. So is there any way you would reach out and take care of us? So how will Nabal respond? Well, 
Nabal's a fool. But how he responds, we're told in verses 10 and 11, is with a shameful insult. And he says, rather than saying, yes, sure, here, let me get some stuff for you, which is what he should have said, he says, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? You know, a lot of servants, or the word can mean slaves, are breaking away from their masters. I think this David's just a runaway, breakaway slave. And so you think you've run away from your master and now you want me to help you. Well, I'm not giving you anything. Why should I take my hard-earned stuff and give it to you? So there's no blessing of peace back. He doesn't, David's given him a shalom three times over. There's nothing that comes back. In fact, there's nothing but scorn. Your, David's wish prosperity, he says, you're nothing but a runaway slave, and I'm not going to share your bount, my bounty with you. Now, in their culture, you, you have to magnify this to understand, well, this is a shame and honor culture, and in a shame and honor culture, this is ultimate insult and shame on David. Uh, in the culture of the ancient Near East, this is about as shameful as it gets. He has shamed David in front of all of his men, and he's shaming all of the men. And the men just stand there, and they listen. And what's, what we're finding out is Nabal's just like Saul. Because, you remember, Saul has not recognized all the good David has done. He just sees David as a problem. Nabal is not recognizing all the good that David has done, all the blessing that has come from David. He's not grateful for that. All he does is keep shame and insult on him for all the things that David has done. He's responded just like Saul. But here's the real question. How will David respond? So far, David's responded very well when Saul has insulted and shamed and persecuted and chased him. So we would hope we would go back, and in the last chapter, every time something like this went on, what's the next thing we would read David did? David sought the Lord. So surely that's what we're going to find in the next verse, right? So verse 12, David's men go back home, and when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and David puts on his, and 400 men went up with them, while 200 stayed behind with supplies. So notice, there is no mention anywhere of David seeking God, which was what he did every turn in the previous chapter. Now there's nothing about this. David is responding on an impulse of anger and shame, and David is saying, strap on your swords. I'm going to have vengeance on the fool that has dared to shame and insult me this way. I will have my vengeance. Make no mistake, David, the beloved, David, the anointed, is acting like a fool. He's responding to a fool according to his folly. And so we're left at this point, if this was again a TV show, we would have a commercial break as David and his men ride off, and then we would sit there and front through the commercial, is this guy actually going to do this? Is David going to become a fool? Is it, is it going to be that, that actually David now means fool and he's going to ride down and slaughter these people over this insult that he received from them? Is he going to act evil? Well, when we come back from commercial break, we don't find out because we, we move from David and we move over to Abigail. And in verses 14 to 17, one of the servants runs to Abigail and says, 
Listen, David, he sent greetings. So, so realize David has blessed because he uses that word shalom. David sent us peace. But, but Nabal hurled insults back at him. So notice this opposite. For, for peace, for blessing, David received insults back. And yet these men were very good to us. There's that word good, tov. And so it's not just David saying it. It is actually the servant of Nabal says, these guys were good to us. They, they were tov to us. But here's what happened. Night and day, they were a wall around us. They protected us. Abigail, you need to figure out what you're going to do in verse 17 because disaster, ra, evil is hanging over our heads right now. And listen, I came to you because there's no point in going to Nabal. He's a wicked fool. There, there's no point. So we have come to you to ask, is there anything you can do to fix this out? So notice David did good. Evil is now likely to fall on Nabal because Nabal insulted. For blessing, he insulted back. And what the servant fears is, is even though David did good, now that Nabal did evil to him, what's David going to turn around and do? Going to do evil back. That's what the servant is fearing. So Abigail immediately jumps up and does wise actions of peace and righteousness. We're going to see this several times. In verse 18, we're told Abigail lost no time. First thing she does is wise is she doesn't sit around. She doesn't try and figure. She doesn't take a poll. She realizes we are in deep, deep trouble. Nabal's living down to his name, and the result is going to be disaster for all of us. I got to act, and I got to act quickly. Now, fortunately, they're already preparing for a huge feast because at sheep shearing time, you'd be having a massive party. So she takes off a bunch of resources, 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaves of them on donkeys. The amazing thing is we find out later, this, Nabal's got so much stuff, that massive supply list I just read, he doesn't even notice that it's missing. Because this guy's so rich, it doesn't, it's just scraps and crumbs off the table to him. But she packs it all up and sends it with the servants and said, go on ahead, I'm going to follow you. And she does not tell Nabal because she realizes if she goes and tells that fool, what's he going to do? He's going to send other servants out and stop them. And she realizes if he does that, it will be disaster for us. So can I tell you, out of the three of them right now, Abigail's the only person in the story keeping her wits about her. Nabal's living down to his name as a fool, and unfortunately, David's living down to Nabal's level. The only person keeping her wits about her right now is Abigail. She's the only one who's doing right. So we then flip back to verses 20 to 22, just, you know, another commercial break, and when we come back, here's David and his men are writing, and Abigail comes over the hill on her donkey, and verse 20, and David and his men are descending. And at that very moment, David is just getting out of his mouth. It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. Now, what's happening here? Y'all have probably never known anybody who's done this, but sometimes if people get insulted and people treat them evil, when they're off by themselves, they start playing the conversation over in their head which usually just calms them down when they do that, right? Have y'all ever seen that? It's usually really good when we play those conversations in our head, right? See, David's doing exactly what you and I do. I mean, how often do we do this? We've all got this conversation we run in our head, right? 
And we either run it towards righteousness or towards evil. And the more David thinks, the angrier David gets. And David starts saying, what I did was, I did a bunch of tov, but he has paid me back raw. I did good, and this man paid me back evil. And the more he thinks about that, the more upset he is. And he's like, I'm going to fire this guy up. And then David says, may God deal with David, be it ever so severely. If by morning, uh, not one male of his is alive. Have you heard anybody else in the book of 1 Samuel make statements like this? Saul. If I just gave you that clip and removed David's name, you would think it was Saul. David's acting that way now. He's acting like Saul and Nabal. He did good. Evil was the response back. And so he says, I'm now going to respond to you with evil. Well, of course, we're sitting there and we're looking, and is, is David really going to commit this sin of bloodshed? Is he just going to ride by, and the next scene is going to be him striking Abigail down as he rides up to the others? Well, Abigail, fortunately, does even further wise actions of peace and righteousness. Notice in verse 23, when she sees him, she quickly gets off her donkey, and she bows down before David with her face to the ground. Notice she is assuming a position of humility. She doesn't come in here to, to, to be superior to David. She gets down, and she bows before him, and she falls at his feet and says, my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. You notice we've seen this before in 1 Samuel. Is Abigail the one to blame for all this? But is Abigail interested in, in slicing and dicing exactly who's to blame? No. Abigail wants peace. Abigail wants righteousness. And so she's not going to try to, she just says, let the blame fall on me, my Lord. Don't, don't be paying attention to this. And notice she's reversing every one of Nabal's actions. Nabal is arrogant towards David. She is humble. Nabal refuses to give David reward for his service. She is bringing gifts for David and all of his men. She is showing wisdom where he is acting like a fool. In every way, she is reversing what Nabal has done. And then she says in verse 25, or at the end of verse 24, she says, please let me speak to you and please listen to what I'm saying. Verse 25, uh, may my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool and folly goes with him. This guy lives down to his name, David. That's what he does. Please ignore him. Now, I want you to understand something. David has vowed to kill every male in Nabal's household. Therefore, is Abigail actually in any danger herself? No. Can you think of anyone else who is righteous and reverses the actions of wicked fools when they themselves were in no danger, but they're willing to sacrifice themselves if need be to rescue those who are now under danger because of the actions of a wicked fool. Abigail's being a type of Christ. She's interceding now for those. She's in no danger herself, but she's interceding for those who are now under a curse because of the foolish actions of another. In this case, Adam. That's what Abigail is doing. And so notice she goes on then in verses 26 to 28, and she says, now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed. David, I got here in time. 
And so you haven't done bloodshed. And from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm, there's that word, ra, everybody who intends to do evil to you, be like Nabal. And as for this gift, which is literally back to the word blessing, She's, she's giving a blessing back to David. Look, you blessed us, and we, we gave cursing back. Well, here's a blessing that comes back to you. I, I want it to be given to all the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. So what she, notice what she's doing. She's appealing and saying, David, God's promised you're going to be king. And may God extend that down through the generations, David. May you get a lasting dynasty. And then she says, because he fights the Lord's battles, let no wrongdoing. Anybody want to guess what the Hebrew word is? Ra, let no evil be found in you. David, one day, you're not going to be in the wilderness. David, one day, you're not going to be out here by yourself. You're going to sit down on your throne. And when you do, you don't want to look down at your hands and they are covered with blood because you did evil, because a fool did evil to you and you responded back in kind. David, you don't want that to be the way it is for you on that day. God is going to put you on the throne, David. Don't avenge yourself. Don't take vengeance for yourself. And so she is making this uh, thing to him, and then she goes on even further, and she says in verse 29 to 31, look, if someone's pursuing you to take your life, which would be Saul, of course, the life of my master is going to be bound up securely. Why are you still here and alive, David? Because who's watching over and protecting you? God. And she may not know it, but of course, how this got a ring in David's ear is you didn't take vengeance yourself on Saul. You trusted God to protect and keep you. But now a fool, a less powerful fool than Saul, is doing evil towards you, and you are being tempted to forget that. And then she says, may the lives of your enemies, the, the lives of your enemies, God will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. What, what story is she referencing to? David, you, you remember when Goliath was there and he taunted? Did you descend to Goliath's level, David? No. No, and every one of your enemies, David, will be like that stone out of that sling. It will hurl away and it will strike down evil. You don't have to do this yourself. And verse 30, when the Lord has done for my master every good thing, we're back to that word good, God's going to do good to you, David, so you don't need to do evil to try and accomplish it. God will watch over you. God will keep his good promise. You will be king. David, be David who was standing before Goliath. David, be David who received the promises and the Spirit came on him. David, be the David who did not take vengeance on Saul, but let him go. That's what your servant Abigail is asking you to do. Now notice David's response in verse 32. He speaks to Abigail and he says, Blessed be the Lord. And I'm putting this up in the ESV because, again, they're being a little bit more literal. Notice here, he says, blessed be the Lord. The NIV has praise be to the Lord, but it's literally the Hebrew word to bless. So he blesses the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion, Abigail, and blessed be you because you kept me from bloodshed. I'm speaking a double word of blessing upon you, Abigail, because 
you restrained me from evil. And notice down uh, in verse 34, the, the Lord, the God of Israel lives and he has restrained me from hurting you. Same word again, Ra. He restrained me from doing evil, Abigail. And how did God restrain me? He did it through you. And so unlike Saul, who refused to repent when God was trying to restrain him, David here sees God's hand of restraint and he stops his headlong rush into sin. And right here, you're seeing the difference between David and Saul. Time and again, God has confronted Saul in his sin and all Saul does is double down and bear down harder into his sin. He will not repent. David has been acting like Saul and acting like Nabal. But fortunately, when good Abigail comes and speaks wise words and shows David his sin, David stops and he repents. Unlike Saul, who refused to hear the voice of Jonathan to leave his sin, David heeds the voice of Abigail and he looks to Yahweh for deliverance. He says, Abigail's right. God delivered me from the lion and the bear when I was a shepherd. God delivered me from Goliath on that day. God has delivered me from Saul through these years. And God will deliver me from Nabal the fool. I will not take up my hand and do vengeance myself. And then in verse 35, he turns and he says, he accepted from her hand what she had brought to him and said, go home in peace. Now, number one, that just means Abigail's stuff worked. But I want you to notice David's sending her away in peace. First time we've heard this word since all the way back at the beginning of the chapter when David sent the threefold blessing of peace on Nabal. Because everything in between is anything but peace. David sends peace, Nabal insults back, and then David descends to Nabal's level. And the only way out is when Abigail is coming as a peacemaker and David finally sees his sin. He's restrained from it. He stops acting the part of the fool and then peace is restored. And he sends Abigail home and says, go in peace, may you be blessed by the Lord. And so we then, it gets wrapped up real quickly and we'll go to applying the word. The aftermath is God deals with Nabal and his sin. And interestingly enough, we see the word tov for the last time, the word good. And here's how we see it. When Abigail goes to Nabal, he was in his house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in good spirits. What does that mean? He was drunk. Okay, now, notice why he did this. There's other ways of saying he was drunk. This guy is such a wicked fool even when you use the word good about him, it's about evil. Everything about this guy is evil. He's a fool. And so he is twisting and he is corrupting. Even when you use the word good, all you can say is he was good and drunk. That's what he is. And so Abigail looks at him and says, I'll deal with you in the morning. She goes off to bed. And then in the morning, Nabal is finally sober. He's got a hangover probably. And his wife comes in and she tells him, here's what I had to do for you, you fool. And she tells him what happened. Now, what Nabal should do at that point is fall on the ground and kiss her feet and say, thanks be to God for giving this fool a wise wife who by her wise and peaceful and blessed actions has delivered me. What he does is he has an apoplectic fit and he's seized up 
and he basically has a stroke and he lays there for 10 days. Okay, And you need to understand the point that the text is making is literally when he sees the blessing Abigail has done for him, his heart stops within him. He can't give her thanks. He can't respond correctly to this. His heart stops within him. His physical reaction is simply an outward sign of his spiritual state. Good news hardens his heart. Okay? The same, Jonathan Edwards observed years ago that the, the same heat from the sun will soften wax and harden clay. Not a different sun. Good news for some people will soften their heart. It softened the heart of David in the midst of his sin. All it does is it hardens Nabal's heart like a stone. And he has a physical reaction that his heart actually starts to choke up within him. And then we read in verse uh, 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The only thing I will say about this is two things. Number one, don't try and escape from the text. I read some people this week who tried to avoid ever God doing things like this. Our God is like Aslan the lion, to quote C.S. Lewis. Lions aren't safe. This is not. Okay? God is not a great big grandfather in the sky. Does he have the right to strike Nabal dead? Does he have the, who does he have the right to strike dead? Everybody. Every last one of us. If you're still sucking air, and so am I, that is grace. Because what you deserve and what I deserve is to be struck like Nabal. So don't accuse God of evil because he gives just desserts. Thank him for grace that all of us are still here and breathing. But notice, did David need to deal with Nabal and his sin? No. David doesn't have to because who's going to do it for him? God's going to do it for him. Yahweh is going to rise up and take vengeance on the fool for David. God deals with Nabal and his sin. David does not need to. And so notice here so we can see, we know what the lesson's supposed to be because in verse 39, we read David hears that Nabal is dead and he praises God for, for dealing with it. And he says in verse, uh, at the end of verse 39, he has kept his servant from doing wrong. He has kept me from Ra. He's kept me from doing evil and has brought down Nabal's wrongdoing, his Ra, on his own head. David says, here's what I have learned. I didn't have to do evil to deal with Nabal's evil. I will let God deal with it. I don't need to take vengeance myself. God will do it. And so God has kept David from doing evil and has done it in such a way that God himself is punishing evil. And let me point this out. We're going to come to this in just a second, but here's why this is important. Why is it okay for God to take vengeance on sin and not for you and me? Because he's God, okay? And look in the mirror, you're not, nor am I. And you are not wise enough, knowledgeable enough, pure enough, and double the same for me to possibly handle vengeance. It's like a two-year-old taking things and saying, I'm going to go in and do neurosurgery. I predict disaster. And if you and I try and take vengeance, it'll be disaster far worse. We're simply not capable. We leave it in the hands of God.
And so we come to applying the word. Very simple question in our text today, and this is kind of law, and I'm going to move to gospel. How do I act when others sin against me? When I do good and I get evil in return, when I bless and they persecute, when I speak peace and I am insulted back, what is my response? Do I say, strap on your sword. I am mounting up, and I'm going to deal with it. Now, I want to tell you, as I go through this text and I wrestle through this, that is very much this guy's response. Okay? I'm just telling you, I had this in spades before I came to the Naval Academy. That solidified it, and then I went in the Marine Corps and it just cast it in iron. There's a way to deal with this. And to my chagrin and shame, my wife can tell you she's watched multiple times where I've gotten out and mounted up and said, you better say your prayers. You're about to have a come to Jesus meeting right now. And threatened people and done things, usually because, see, and here's the bad thing, David can say, hey, look, I did all of this stuff for Nabal. And I did all this. Of course, he sounds like the godfather when he does that. I offered you some protection, and you're not giving me my due. Okay, But he can justify it, right? I could give all the theological justification. That person disrespected my wife. So I'm going to rip his arm off and beat him with a bloody end. Sad to say, I have actually literally told people that. And I can give you, this is the way I'm going to do. So I fully, totally get David's response. But I hang my head in shame. It's wrong. It's taking vengeance. And I will say, I have gotten better. I I have not threatened to beat somebody's arm off in a while. Okay? I I have not threatened to kill people or do whatever else. Okay? You you need to understand, I'm being open and honest. This, this, This is a struggle for me when I read this because I very much am a strap on my sword, mount up, and you and I will meet, and it's gonna not go well for you. That is very much my response. But it's wrong. When I do good and someone returns evil, do I feel the thirst to take vengeance? Now, I'll use a different word. But when I boil it down, do I feel the thirst to take vengeance? Do I feel the need to repay evil for evil? To respond to a fool by descending to their level and speaking the foolishness? If they speak, now I want you to understand, this all came up before the people started saying stuff about me on Facebook this weekend. I wrote the sentence I'm about to say. If they speak evil of me, do I do the same back to them? If they make lies up about me, then I can just say, say whatever I want about them, right? If they say they're going to start taking my picture and putting crude things around it, do I have a right to respond back? And whatever in me says, yes, is acting like David, Nabal, Saul, and not like Abigail, and more importantly, not like Christ. Now, for most of us, this is not done today. Fortunately, it's not too often, even I have never said to 400 people, strap on your swords, we're riding into town tonight, we're going to leave this place waste. Not generally what we do today. We generally do it verbally today. So you slander me, 
and I slander you. Usually as a prayer request. I'll leave it there. Or we gossip. And all we're doing is acting the way they do. Let the law of God do its work. This is not how we want to be. And this is a great lesson. We are heading into a season of incredible foolishness in America called the election cycle. We are going to see all of, we're going to see Nabal all over the place on our screens. People spouting foolishness on all sides, spreading lies and slanders and half-truths. And I have actually confronted Christians about it before and been told, but don't you think the person's a bad person? So it's really okay if I spread half-truths about them. To which my answer is no. We never serve the truth by spreading lies. We never do. Leave that to other people. Let Nabal be a fool and let God deal with Nabal. I want to act righteously. Now, this is a major teaching in Scripture, and then I'm going to turn to gospel. Notice, for example, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant from which all others flow, and we look at this. This is ours. God says, I will make you into a great nation. Who's going to make us great? God will, and I will bless you. And if God says he's going to bless you, who can stop that? No one. And then God says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Not you're going to be a mirror and respond back to people whatever they give to you. You're going to be a blessing. And here's how you can do that. Because I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, you don't have to curse. You can keep on blessing because I will take care of them. I will curse them, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do we ever do anything cursing in this entire passage? Nothing, because I don't have to worry about it. God's going to bless me no matter what they do. Can I, here's a good promise for you. If someone persecutes you and speaks evil of you and insults you, all they're doing is increasing your reward on Judgment Day. What's bad about that? So just give me some more. On that day, God's going to bless me more. And if you don't, life's better for me now. So whichever way you go, I win. I'm under the blessing of God. So notice in Proverbs 20, 22, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. Romans chapter 12, verses 18 and 19 and verse 21. You should, if you've not memorized this text for interpersonal relationships, you should memorize it. This should guide all of our conduct with other people. If it is possible, now what does that mean? Sometimes it's not possible. As far as it depends on you, which means there are things I can't do to accomplish this. So sometimes it's not possible because there's things that I just can't go to. But here, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. So here's what Paul says. Sometimes it's not possible because people will be evil and foolish and require you to go places you can't go. And what do you do when that happens? Here's what you do. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. Paul, the young Hebrew, would be saying, do not be overcome by Ra. Overcome Ra with Tov. That's how you respond. When evil is done to you, you respond with good. When you do good and they give evil, you give more good back. 
That's what our call is. And then finally, in Matthew 5, this is from Jesus, and with this, we'll turn to gospel. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Is that not our basic way of operating? That's how we want to operate. I, I very much, I, I'm like, I, I can do that, God. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. If you're not, say your prayers. But notice what Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And here's why that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Who in here has ever done evil before God? Who in here has ever returned unjust conduct for all of God's mercy and blessings upon them? But how does God respond to us? From the garden, we have rebelled. From the time you took your first breath, you have joined Adam in his cosmic rebellion. So have I. And God's response is broken body and shed blood. God's response is grace and mercy and kindness. So we're going to come to the table. We come to a table of justice, vengeance against sin, and mercy. But the justice and the vengeance is poured out on Christ so that you and I receive mercy. And if our God is that way, and to use Jesus' parable, if our God has forgiven us debts that run into millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, how can you not forgive the fool who has struck out at you for a couple of dollars? How will we respond? And so we come to this table today, and I remind you of the gospel. The reason we do this ultimately is not law. We do not take vengeance ourselves because God has not taken vengeance on us. And because he is not, it frees us up to be people of mercy. We can be good. We can bless. We can pray. We can be channels of overflowing grace to other people regardless of their response to us. Because the absolute worst that can happen is they can increase our reward on Judgment Day. Worst they can do. And anything above and beyond that is just extra grace upon us. And we don't have to worry about it. We are under the blessing of God. And so, I want to remind you as you come to the table, receive the grace of God, and then let's live like those who receive the grace of God. And live that way. And know God is able to deal with the wickedness of man far better than you and I. Leave it to the all-knowing, all-wise, all-holy one. He'll do it way better than you and I will. And then on that day when Jesus says, come join me and sit beside me, we won't sit there and think, ugh, all the blood on my hands. Because all the times I took vengeance myself. We don't want that. If you are a visitor here, you do not have to be a member of our church. You do have to be a believer, which means you understand what I've just been talking about the last couple of moments. You deserve the wrath of God. But instead of wrath, you've received mercy because of Jesus Christ.
solely because of Jesus Christ. If you believe that your only righteousness is his broken body and shed blood that you have received by faith alone, then we encourage you to participate and eat with us. If you don't, then pass it up because this table is a declaration that that is what we believe. For what I received from the Lord, I also pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, this morning we come to you and we thank you for the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. As we come to your table, Lord, we pray that your law would have its full work and that your gospel would bring complete healing and encouragement and strength to us as your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As you get the elements in just a moment, I encourage you, please hold on to them, and then we will take them. And I encourage you that if there is anyone with whom you are wanting to return evil for evil, anyone where there is something like this going on in your heart, I encourage you, please that hand that over to the Lord and receive his grace and mercy. We will take together in just a couple of moments. Father, we come to this table this morning. As we hold this bread, we are reminded too often by our own nature and our own actions, we could have the name Nabal written over us. Too often, O oh God, we have been the fool joining in cosmic rebellion against you. And yet, Jesus, the wisdom of God, came. He was broken. He was crushed for we fools. Lord, we are reminded of our own sin. And the Holy One has come and paid the price for that sin. So Lord, this morning, we take this bread and we give you thanks, O oh God, that in the depth of our folly, in the depth of our sin, you took vengeance, but you did it upon Jesus for us. And we are simply grateful people who have been set free because he has drank the righteous wrath of God for us. Thanks be to God. Take and eat. And Jesus, as we hold the cup of the new covenant, we are reminded that among other things, this covenant takes the law of God and it inscribes it on our heart. And so, Lord, you have told us for millennia, do not take vengeance, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. You have told us to not play the part of the fool and answer fools according to their folly. But Lord, we are grateful that now, because of the blood of Christ that was shed, bringing us into the new covenant, that law is written on our hearts. And so, Father, we pray for the blood of Christ to cleanse us of our sin, 
and also to release us from its power. Lord, we would be those who would go forth and live as the children of God. Live as those who would be like our merciful Father in heaven, who is kind to both the good and the evil, and who even sends blessings upon those who are good and righteous and those who are even evil and wicked. Father, we pray that the blood of Christ would cleanse us and also free us from the power of sin. Thanks be to God for the blood. Take and Holy Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would come fresh upon us. And we pray that you, having pricked our consciences by your law and then relieved our fears by your gospel, that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit and that we would go forth from here freely and freshly empowered to live that law, to obey you, O God. Father, I pray for us that we would go forth and live as those who are wise and who would make you rejoice, not as the fool. Father, I pray that when we are tempted to respond to people around us who would speak evil, who would do harm, Father, I pray just as you restrain David from his folly that you would restrain us, you would send someone our way, or your Holy Spirit would be there to speak to us. Father, I pray that rather than being those who would descend and give evil for evil, Father, would you make us sources of blessing even as you have promised. Lord, we want to spread the blessing that has come to us through the gospel to others all around us. So Father, we submit ourselves fresh and new to you and say, Lord, fill us, mold us, use us, pour the blessings earned for us by Jesus Christ. Pour them out upon us Fill us to overflowing that they might spread to people around us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let's stand together and we will close with the word of benediction from the Abrahamic covenant. May the Lord make you into a great nation and bless you. May he make your name great so that you will be a blessing. May he bless those who bless you, and may he be the one who curses whoever would curse you. And may all peoples on earth be blessed through you. Go in the blessing of the gospel. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.